All right, well, hey, good morning, New Life Church. We're going to go ahead and get back to our seats and get into today's message. Uh, as you know, we, if you don't know, we are in a series that we started last Sunday in the book of Colossians, a four-chapter uh, book that the Apostle Paul wrote. And um, Max uh, did a great job last week uh, introducing that series and getting us on, on the road with that. Today, one of our other elders in the church, Thomas Varghese, is going to be speaking and taking part two of this. Uh, this is a, a four-part through the month of July. And so uh, we're going to carry on with Colossians today and get into that. So help me welcome one of our elders today, Thomas Varghese. Am I good? All right. <clears throat> I might not be too excited by the time I get finished, but it's a good start anyway. Praise the Lord. Don't mind my curly hair. Happens when I run around a lot. <clears throat> so that was my uh, subtle hint. There's a little reverb going on. Uh, I was actually going to wear my camel skin cloak and bring my staff, you know, to go along with the rest. So, but it didn't get here. <clears throat> Thank you. It's all right, you know. Uh, God likes when his children have fun. And church is not supposed to be a dour place where the long faces and my mom used to say that, you know, you're a ambassador for Jesus. And if everybody looks at you and goes, says, man, I don't know if I want that kind of Jesus by just seeing how you act and your countenance is, and I don't blame them. So, if you're, uh, too proper, it can get in the way of Jesus being who he is. You know, <clears throat> today's, uh, Colossians has got a lot, Paul has a lot of common themes in his episodes, there's about 13 books, which is almost two-thirds of the New Testament that he wrote. He's like, Father, I just thank you and I pray the things you put in will come out like they're supposed to. So may the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart be acceptable and help us to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Amen. You know, my opinions are not of any account but the word of the Lord is everything. So I encourage you to, no matter who stands up here, examine what's being said, hold it to the word, hold on to that which is good, forgive the stupidity on the part of the person here who didn't do the rest, and carry on and love them, right? So <clears throat> Paul is writing all this stuff from prison mostly, and what is the most come and think what's going on with the church in the first century here. They're all new churches who are muddling their way through how to follow Jesus. Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> the more things change, the more they remain the same. So if you'll see, you'll see that Paul, across all of his uh, 
Epistles has a common theme where he's giving them instruction on how to conduct themselves and, you know, why, uh, you know, how you should do this. Because these people don't know anything about Jesus. Right? And all of Paul's ministry, I would say almost all of it, except for a little bit, had to do with Gentiles, which are non-Hebrew people. We fall in that category. That's what the Lord called them to do. So they have no idea. These people are Greeks, uh, Persians. I mean, whatever, they're worshiping a thousand gods and doing sacrifice and, you know, living like everybody does. So, for instance, you wonder, well, why does Paul say? So when we read the epistles, we need to keep this in mind. And a lot of times we just take a few verses out of the Bible and we try to extrapolate it and analyze it and deduct it and have some sort of a huge God thing come out. Okay, this is a great principle. But really, it's just letters Paul wrote to a bunch of Christians who are having trouble getting their act together. No, that's what it is. And sometimes he was nice to them. Sometimes he was hard. He said, well, shall I come to you with a whip or with chop words? I mean, come on. What do you want today? Get your head screwed on straight. That's what he was saying half the time. So one of the things that was common is that what happened with the early church, the problem is that is the early converts were all Jews. So they have this mixture. When the non-Jews became Christians, they had this list of do's and don'ts in their culture, in their religious background, that they're trying to impose on the non-Jews who had nothing to do with any of that except follow Jesus. So one of the things that you'll find, that Colossians talks about, is the traditions of men versus what, who Jesus is and following his words. So this is a common problem with all the churches. All right? Uh, for instance, Ephesus, that where the temple of Diana was here. So it was common practice for the men to go to the temple. As part of the sacrifice, they slept with the prostitutes of the temple. So Paul will come back and say, look, you can't do this anymore. Don't go to the temple because this is not what you believe. Because they didn't know. Just think about turning a kid loose in a church and say, figure it out. Somebody's got to tell them what to do. So this was the job that Paul's biggest job was and all those who were going after him. So there's another place where I'm trying to think where he says, you know, when you gather, don't drink too much. And you wonder, some people say, well, the Bible just preaches against drinking. No, it does not. It preaches against drunkenness. So what would happen, the church is not like we see it now. And I'll get to some of that in a minute. They gathered in the homes because there were no church buildings. Who were the accepted elders were? Maybe several of them spoke. See, when I, when I was growing up, that's the way it was because where we went, there were no churches on the mission field. So what would happen is that a lot of times our perspective on gatherings is skewed by the fact that we can get from, let's say, Walmart to here. How long will it take? 15 minutes. You walk it, how long do you think it's going to take? It's 13 miles. A good walker will do four miles an hour. So, two and a half, three hours to get here. All right, so think of Sunday morning or the gathering of the believers. 
as everybody having to walk everywhere. All right? So it's a day-long affair. Start at sunup. You want to get home before it's dark because you don't want to be robbed by bandits or be bitten by snakes or whatever it is, right? All right. That's true. I did that. I did that. So my parents were in Nepal. Saturday was the day off. That was a Sunday. And it was pretty much an all-day affair because we were the nearest people to the next nearest people, and it was a good 45-minute walk. There were others who walked two hours. So at 9 o'clock, we'll start, you know, because you do your morning breakfast. There's no restaurants. Maybe wayside. You get there. When you get there, you're not like, okay, let's go praise and worship. Everybody's tired. They're dusty. They're dirty. And hence Jesus' little admonition when he went to, uh, you know, Simon's, I mean, uh, whose house was he in when the woman came in? I'm drawing a name blank. Zacchaeus' house, was it? No, Simon's house. Eh? And the woman came in, and he said, he said, well, you didn't give me water to wash. It's common practice in those days. That's why you have the outer cloak. It collects all the dust. You have good clothes underneath it. You take it off, hang it outside. You've already taken a bath, so you don't need to take a bath. You wash your hands and your feet because that's what's exposed to the dust. You leave your shoes outside because you don't take the dust dirt into the house. Common Middle Eastern practice. So this is why, you know, when Peter said, Jesus, just give me a bath. He says, no, I don't give you a bath. We just need to clean your arms and feet. All right? That's confession. That is a whole different sermon. But <clears throat> so anyway, so this is common practice. So we go and uh, we'd have some tea or cold water, depending on the weather, right? And you sit and talk. And then the others will come eventually, depending on how far they are. The first thing we do is eat lunch. There are no restaurants. We're not going to starve all day long. So we have a meal together, which is the breaking of the bread, you know, whatever it is. And then uh, the elders will teach. My dad taught. There were a couple other people. would sing songs, encourage each other, share about needs, take a little tea break after an hour and a half or so. And then we'll go back to it. So a three-hour service is not uncommon. Then everybody's got to leave because the sun will set by 7.30, it'll get dark. And you do not want to be out on country roads, especially when there are cobras and crates around. Or you can't see the way because there's no street lights. So this is life, New Testament life. So I'm just telling you because I've lived this. So we have no idea when we buzz to church at the last minute break, you know, drive 80 miles an hour like I do sometimes. And, uh, you know, get there just in time. And Glenn was still working. He'll probably pull you over. But, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, so this is life. So when they come together, they have a meal together. And as was common practice, they drank wine. It was the culture. Water wasn't always healthy. So they drank wine. The British did that for centuries. But, you know, a couple of the guys like to have a couple of extra glasses of wine. So here's Paul and a few others trying to teach. And these guys are getting a little rambunctious in the back. Oh, that was funny. Oh, yeah, that's good, yeah. So look, this is church, folks. <laughs> Just think about that. <laughs> so Sunday morning, as we see it, did not, <laughs> it did not exist for many, many centuries. So they get together, and he says, okay, if you like to drink that much, drink at home. Don't do it here, because we're just trying to 
get a little work done here, okay? And I said, yes, sir. People will fall asleep, just like here. Well, one kid fell asleep and he fell out the window and died. And then Paul went and prayed for him and brought him back to life. So that's why he fell, because he fell asleep. So if you're going to fall asleep, don't sit on a window on the first floor, second floor. You might die. Okay, everybody kind of getting this picture in your head, what's going on? Just, just think of this, multiple gatherings in all of the places that Paul wrote a letter to. Fish, like Ephesus, Philippa, I mean, uh, the Philippians, the Colossians, all the, all, the, all the books are named after places, right? So today, we're talking about Colossians of this, this month. And thank you, Max, for setting us up with all the historical stuff last week. That was So the Colossi, that's the place... Paul had never been there. Apparently, Epaphras was the one who founded the church. He's one of the ones that Paul discipled and sent out. And, you know, led so, so the church is growing. So what happens now in this context is that... <clears throat> oh, get my notes out. Yes, helps if you have your notes in front of you. So as is typical with Paul, he does this huge greeting. You ever notice all of his books? It's like a whole paragraph of... Why? Because it's not email. There's no texting. There's no mail mail. So people transported letters by hand whenever somebody wanted to get some music. And that's what all these episodes are. Basically letters that were sent by Paul. Somebody else wrote them apparently because his eyesight was bad. So Colossians 1 through 9. I read a lot today. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom, understanding that the Spirit gives. So this is a good thing to do as a practice. So I'm going to give you a lot of food for thought today. I don't know what the teaching or preaching today might be a little bit of a mix. I encourage you a little bit. So, you know, don't be in a hurry to get to business when you're talking to fellow believers. Bless them a little bit. Talk to them. Say, I'm praying for you. If you're not praying for them, don't lie. <clears throat> you know, the best time to pray for somebody is when you say, I'm going to pray for you. And you don't have to worry about it later on. The Lord's taught me about doing that, dropping, praying at the drop of a hat. Doesn't matter where you are. And please, Jesus can hear if your eyes are open. Let's pray. Here we are in the middle of the lift. I'm praying for somebody. Eyes are closed, and I can see there's 20 people. I'm going to go, what the heck is he doing on the track praying for somebody? Somebody's knee was busted. The Lord said, pray for it. So I decided to stop and pray. So now I say, don't close your eyes because we're going to freak people out. Just keep your eyes open. Jesus will hear us fine. <laughs> you know, the early Jews prayed. Sometimes they prayed this way, but if it was on the temple, it was like this. We lift our eyes to the heaven. That's why scripture talks about lifting our eyes to the Lord. It's open, wide, lifted up. All right. So here's a lot of things that we do, but they didn't do. All right. So before I get back to that, um, pardon me just a minute. 
All right, well, maybe the Lord doesn't want me to read all my notes. But I do remember them. Okay, Lord, whatever you want. We who have grown up in this kind of background have what I call an institutionalized outlook toward church. So this whole routine started with Constantine when it became, Christianity became the official religion of the country. Constantinople, Turkey is Constantinople, okay, that whole, that's where Constantine ruled. So, so then it became an institutionalized thing, they absorbed some of the local customs in there. Till then, pretty much what we call house groups, small groups, this is nothing new, folks, what we're doing. Life groups, all these are happening as usual, all right? so. <clears throat> So what happens to us is we grow up with this idea that church is supposed to be this way. Well, what if it's not? Right? What if God decides this routine is not what it's supposed to be? It works. I'm not knocking institutions. I'm just saying that's our outlook. Now, I grew up with what I call an apostolic outlook towards churches. We were always the first Christians there. Most of my life, I didn't spend it in church, even though we came from a church background. Then people got saved, the church grew. So the last place my parents were, there were a dozen Christians, and now there's about 25, 30,000 Christians, of which my parents and us, we helped planted a lot of those churches. These are people who don't know anything about Jesus. They have the same problems that the Colossians have, because they have their customs and traditions, you know, uh, whatever it is still doing stuff like idol worship because they haven't learned not to do that, okay? So what happens is that we develop an institutionalized outlook towards church, which creates its own set of traditions, all right? Now, Jesus was very anti-tradition in the sense that if it interfered with what the Lord, he went to synagogue because when he first stood up, you know, and he read Isaiah 61, it was his practice to go to the synagogue and, and do the church thing, you know, because that's what they did. So what happens is that we develop this whole outlook of traditions. And scriptures over and over and over and over saying, don't be bound by traditions when the word of God or his work is at stake. So, all right, getting back to this first verse. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, okay? I'm going to have to hurry here. I won't get done today otherwise. All revelation about Jesus comes from the Holy Spirit. You can preach the gospel. People can hear it. They can believe it. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Son of God. What was Jesus' answer to him? That's right. It was a revelation. Nobody can say that without revelation. As a matter of fact, if you're dealing with demon-possessed people, they will not be able to utter the word, say Jesus is the Son of God. I've seen that happen. They cannot say it. It's an authority thing. They will flounder on the ground, throw you off, spit, spit at you, foam in the mouth. I've seen all of those. All right. I know it seems like I'm hopping around. It all makes sense later. All right. 
Let's go to Colossians 2, 13 and 15. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let me read the verses before that. Colossians 2, because it has to tie together. My goal, to, uh, sorry, verses 2 through 4. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So I'm a debater. And one of my majors is philosophy, and I studied that literally to deal with idiots who wanted to spout philosophy. I said, fine, I'll meet you on your own ground. As I told one existentialist, I said, why are you bothering living? Because the end of your argument is death, so go ahead and shoot yourself in the head now. Be done with it. And he said, I can't believe you just told me to do that. I said, if you believe what you believe, that's the end result for you. Why bother? A lot of existentialists do. Nietzsche, Oscar Wilde, they all came to the same conclusion. They ended up ending their lives. So, but the thing is that philosophy does not produce life. It's only good for tearing down arguments. And it's good to understand where the people are coming from. The life comes from the word of God. When you start speaking the word of God to people, it starts building them up. Okay? So, <clears throat> don't be deceived. So, if you start getting an argument about stuff, just back off. There's a time for discussion, there's a time for debate, but if it's for the, if you sense that somebody's just doing it to make a point, just back off and, hey, listen, I'm not going to bother with this because it's not producing any fruit. All you want to do is make a point. A lot of Christians will do that. All right, so, so when did Jesus save us? While we were still dead in our sins, right? So did you do anything by which he said, all right, I think I'll save you because, you know, you did this thing. So it's the same old issue that has plagued the church from the first century through the Reformation is all working for God, salvation as opposed to the grace of God being enough, right? We're all saved by grace. Martin Luther, this is the reason the Reformation came about, because the Catholics were peddling pardons. Well, if you pay, you know, 50 grand to the church, you're forgiven for the next 20 years. Uh, they were selling pardons. But uh, and that's when Martin Luther, you know, he did his little fine thesis and said, well, okay, it's by grace alone that we're saved. So Jesus didn't die for your works on the cross. He died for you and me. Right? So what the Lord told me some time back was that, look, I know you messed up yesterday. I know you're going to mess up today. I know you're going to mess up tomorrow. All this. So don't get hung up on yourself about what's going to, what you're going to do or not going to do. When you fall down, get off the ground fast. I got stuff for you to do because I want to track here. So as an early Christian, my, uh, I'm a perfectionist by nature. My lack of ability to perform paralyzed me for months at end. 
before I began to understand that it wasn't about performance, that Jesus didn't save me so that I could do all these things, and if I didn't do them, then by golly, I was a bad Christian. There are no good Christians, you know that? All the people who think they're good without Christ are all going to hell. I know it sounds a little harsh, but the goodness of the world is what prevents sometimes people who do good things that they can make and say, don't. So, <clears throat> let us be conscious of this fact. So, I'm getting somewhere with this, which is, I hope I get there before you guys all fall asleep. Is that we see constantly in Scripture that there's this fight in bodies and in our own personal lives to do things to make us Christians or not do things or do things that don't make us Christians. It's always, okay, if we do this, we're a good Christian. If we, if, we do, if we do this, we're a follower of Christ. If I don't do this, I'm not a follower of Christ. The only time you're going to be 100% with Jesus is when you're dead. Till that point, it's a, it's a progress, okay? So, um, we are human beings, not human doings. What is the work of the Lord? That's the question Jesus asked. And what was the answer to that? To believe on the one whom the Father has sent. That is the work of the Lord. Everything else is a byproduct of that faith and following Jesus. And where did you find Jesus most of the time? Did you find him in church? Is the, when you read the four Gospels, where do you find him most of the time? He was with all these people that nobody else wanted to mess with. He's with the tax collector. He says, well, you know, if I do this, they say I'm a drunkard. If I go here, they say I'm a glutton, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's no, I mean, there's always somebody trying to get him, right? They'll bring the coin and say, you know, who do you think we should pay taxes to? And Jesus said, why are you trying to trap me? That's when he said the famous line, render unto Caesar. That which Caesar, render unto God, what is God? He knew that. So nothing has changed in human nature since the beginning. And you'll find that major religions in the world, other than Christianity, all demand that you work for you to be saved. Especially Hinduism. The whole idea of reincarnation is that if the good outweighs better in the next life, you'll be a little better off and a little better off. Uh, and, you know, eventually you'll get to an enlightened state. On the other hand, if you keep, you know, doing crazy stuff and don't do as good, you might end up being toilet paper. So, I mean, because it's life, right? So you plant, animal, human beings, is this whole ascendancy. I say, well, if you become a tree and they turn into toilet paper, you know, I'm just saying. So, but it's just ridiculous when you say it that way, but that's literally what a lot of the, a lot of the, so, so God didn't, you know, he doesn't demand performance from you and I. What does he ask for us? The thing that I said before you today is not too hard for you. I think it's in Micah where it says, is to what? Obey the Lord. So a lot of us look at holiness as a product. It's not a, it's not a product. What we want. So we do all these good things because we think it's going to make us holy. What makes you holy? What makes you holy? The blood of Christ. Just pretend that my clothes are dirty. Okay, underneath. 
But this clean shirt on the outside hides everything. The blood of Christ shed on the cross for us imputes his righteousness to us. And that is why we can enter the throne room with grace and see God and say, okay. I'm just saying this, folks. Stop being hung up on things you do and don't do for Jesus because it will paralyze your Christian life. Because on the days you're doing good, you're good with the Lord. On the days you're doing bad, you're bad with the Lord. No, Jesus loves you regardless. As a matter of fact, sometimes on my worst day, he's used me more than on my best day. I'm going to share a little story with you here. Some of you have already heard it. So in my former company, I should drive this huge monster of a truck. It's a big F something, 50, with a 10 cylinders. You know, push the gas and you can hear the gas going. <laughs> so we had a, a, a gas account at Dudley's Exxon, which is on the corner of Hollywood on the bypass. So company car, I'd go there. It, three weeks was by my cycle for how much gas is. So I'd go in there, sign a ticket, fill the gas up, and leave. Been doing this for years. I mean, so I get there one day. It's about 7.30 in the morning. I'm like Jonah. I don't want to do anything that morning. I go in there, and I fill the gas. And the guy who's been waiting on me all the past two, three years still there, his arm is in a sling. And it's, I said, what's, what's up with your hand, man? Did you hurt? He says, yeah, I got the gout. And I said, does it hurt? He said, yeah. Well, I hope it gets feeling better. Sign the ticket and walk out the door. I'm, this, is, this is one of those times where the Lord's teaching me how to pray on demand. I have no sooner pulled out of the gas station, headed right on Hollywood, going downtown. The Lord said, why don't you pray for his arm? I'm like, okay, don't bother me. I haven't had my coffee. It's 7.30 in the morning. Can we just do this later? Literally. Now you look at me and say, you know me. Like he said, no, you didn't say that. Oh, yeah, I did. I said, don't bother me, Lord, is what I said right now. So I got down to where the stores are and the car washes. And you know, once the Lord pokes a thing on you, I wheel the truck around grumbling the whole time. <laughs> Come back over there. And there he is outside in the full service line. I said, great. Now I'm going to have an audience while I'm praying for the guy. Literally what I thought. So there's a lady in a Cadillac. It's like 735, 740, something like that. There's a guy in the full, this is when full service was still a thing. He's filling gas for her. I pull up behind her car. I can see her kind of peering at me. Who is this dark looking man hanging up behind my car, you know? But anyway, the guy's like, I said, hey man, can I pray for your arm? He said, what? I said, can I pray for your arm? He said, yeah, sure. So this is my prayer. Lord, <laughs> you asked me to come back and pray for this man's arm. I pray that you will touch him and heal him in Jesus' name. Amen. One breath. Yeah. So on my performance level, where do you think I was on a score of 1 to 10? Maybe a minus 20? Maybe a minus 100? So did Jesus hate me that morning? Did I do my work, like, with joy? No. One thing I did do was I obeyed him. Even though I didn't want to do it. Even though I didn't feel like it. Even though I haven't had my coffee yet. So, three weeks later, I come back. Again, I feel, I've forgotten all about this. And I signed the ticket, same guy. And I'm about to walk out the door. And he goes, hey, man. I said, what? He said, I don't know what you did, but my arm got better. The Lord healed him. I went to my truck and cried for 30 minutes. 
because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not our works. It's not the things we pile up saying, this is what I've done for the Lord. I can give you a list of things. Listen, I've lived it. That's not it. On our worst day, Jesus loves us more than we deserve. And he still gives us responsibility. He says, I know, it's okay, but it's all me. In our weakness, he's made strong. In our foolishness, he's made wise. If you multiply and extrapolate what I did that day into my whole life, you'll find that my performance is completely useless. I have nothing to give to Jesus. Nothing at all. And this is the same problem that they were having with the Colossians. So the Jews were trying to say, you need to get circumcised. You need to do this. You need to do all this. So basically, they were trying to Judaize the Gentiles. Please, don't try to make a duplicate yourself if you lead somebody to the Lord. That's not your job. Our job is not to fix people. There's only one person that can fix people, and his name is Jesus. For years I did that, even in my ministry. Well, man, you better do this, you know, better do that. You know, if you don't do this, you know. None of it was producing fruit. The guys would be good for two, three months, two, three weeks, maybe two, three years, and then bomb again. Only Jesus. I have never given anything up because Jesus beat me on the head with a club. But all that I've given up is because he's been kind to me. And I know he's kind and good to me. Therefore, I have no reservation in doing things that he asked me to do, even though I might not want to do it. Because eventually I believe that. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Colossians 2, 21 through 23. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You can work as hard as you want to to try to straighten out your life. Try to do this and try to do that in order to please God. It will not happen. You'll do good for a while. And then you'll crash and burn. That's what the Lord did for how he got me out of my addiction. I tried. There were many months when, you know, I, some of you may have heard my testimony, but I used to be a junkie before the Lord saved me. He touched my body and healed me of the desire for the things that caused me to have problems. And that's how I became different. Not because I went on a 12-month program. There are, there are people who go through that, and the Lord touches them differently. I don't know. I went to bed and woke up flushed clean. Flushed clean, completely. Never had a desire for any of that stuff. 
And unlike what a lot of people said, don't go back into the company of people, I went back to work at a rehab to help people, right in the middle of all that stuff, to this day. What I'm saying is that when you start spending time with the Lord, and the Lord starts spending time with you, and you stop just vomiting stuff in front of him, which is what we do most of the time. Be still and know that I am God. He didn't say, write me an essay, which is what we do. You see, Matthew 6 through 22 says what? Don't worry about what you'll eat, wear, drink, right? Your heavenly Father knows you have need, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto. All of our lives drive and the things that we do can be reduced to those things. Food, shelter, clothing. Maybe your shelter is, you know, a $100,000 shelter. Maybe it's a $50,000 shelter. Maybe you're wearing Gucci. Maybe you're wearing Salvation Army. Doesn't matter. It's some version of it. So Jesus says, don't worry about all that, but seek first the kingdom. What do we do with the majority of our lives? Being anxious for those things. So the Lord asked me one day, I'm probably going to run over a little bit, is that okay? He said, when you pray, how much time do you spend praying for my stuff? And how much time do you spend praying for your stuff? I said, 90% my stuff. <laughs> Maybe 10% your stuff. You know, the Lord asks you a question, you've got to be honest because he already knows the answer. He wants us to confess to what we're doing. That's the whole idea of confession, admitting the thing to the Lord that he already knows about you. That's being humble, not like, oh, I'm a nice Christian, please, you know. See that guy over there, what do you do? No, it's all false humility. True humility is acknowledging the Lord whenever he points his finger at you, says something to you, say, yes, Lord. So, then he says, you know, you got that backwards. You just spend 10% of the stuff praying for your things, 90% of mine. He said, who's going to pray for my things? We aren't called to kingdom work so we can be self-absorbed and solve our problems. We're not in this world to solve problems. We're in this world to bring life to people who need it. You can go fix somebody's financial problems, give them all the counseling and stuff and like that, but if the life of the Lord is not in them, they will always be in the same place over and over and over and over again. And you don't have to be perfect to do it. All right? So this is my, one of my not-so-funny funnies. Okay. So Jesus' disciples, there was not a perfect person in there, except for one guy. And what did he do? He went and hung himself. Judas was the guy who lived by the law, who followed the commands, blah, blah, blah. When he finally came to knowledge of what he had done, he couldn't live with it. All the others, including Peter, says, I don't know this Jesus guy. Change the world. Change the world. 
Okay? So. <clears throat> Mercy, Lord. Do not be bound by traditions of men. Don't impose your own traditions on people. When the woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus, what did he ask her, finally? Where are your accusers? She said, Lord, there are none. He said, well, I don't either. For God didn't come, what, to condemn, but it says that even a bruised reed he will not hurt. And we're all bruised reeds. Jesus is not in the business of making people feel bad. So that every time they walk into prison, they feel like a dog who's been whipped and knows he's done something wrong. I lived that way for a long time, waiting for God to zap me every time I turned a corner because I knew I'd mess something up. I was that kid, you know. I used to calculate whether it was worth getting a whipping from my dad before I decided. I see, yeah, it's worth it. I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm still that way. And, you know, I have a father that has to spank me periodically. I'm getting better at it. It amazes me. If I were Jesus, I want to pick me to do all the stuff that I'm doing now. I'm just telling you. You know, some of my friends ask me, how come, man, you get along with so many people and you know, you know, it seems like you don't have any issues. I'm the worst person I know. You think I'm joking? I'm not. In my early Christian life, when I was trying to seek the Lord, there were these things I would say, I would never do that. And we do that in the church. Oh, I'll never do that. And one day I was sitting, I don't know how long I was there, and the Lord took me in the spirit to everything that I said I wouldn't do and showed me not only did I do that, but I became worse than that. And when I came out of that prayer time, I was like, I don't say those words again. Because we kind of gloss over our depravity thinking, oh, you know, well, I'm... Why? Because... We have this idea that we can perform and stay safe. No. I'm, sa- I'm not saying perform badly. I'm just saying don't think that's going to save you. So when you start, put everything aside and just start spending some time with the Lord. Whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, just do it. And when he makes you look in the mirror, just acknowledge what he says, and things will change for you. You'll stop judging people. You'll stop having judgment on yourself. You'll stop getting irritated at people. Why are we irritated at people? Why do we get angry at people? They don't meet our expectations. So Jesus looks at me. What do you think he sees? (laughs) He looks at you. What do you think he sees? You think you're meeting his expectations as far as holiness is concerned? No, but what does he say? I love you. You're in the palm of my hand. Nobody's going to snatch you out of here. All the scripture is full of God telling us how much he loves us. Okay, our Father in heaven, 
cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Forgive us our trespasses. What's the rest of it? Okay, let's work that backwards. Say you don't forgive her for something. What happens to your thing when you go before Jesus? Do you say, eh, you know, take care of some business first, then come back to me. That's why I said when you give, bring a gift to the altar. If you have odd against your brother, leave it there. All right. When we read early, there was this whole idea of legal indebtedness. So God's law doesn't change just because there's grace. There's this thing called sin that produces death. The only way to kill death is to give life. Okay? But then death's there all the time. So the life's got to be there all the time, too. Who lives all the time? Ah, some connections there. So he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world before sin became. So sin is an entity that demands a payment. So when Jesus died, he took care of that payment. We're still dealing with do's and don'ts, and we're still struggling. So one of the things that we need to stop being confused about is that if you trust the Lord and you believe in him, you're good. The thing that we have to work on is what? So this whole thing about sanctification and justification. Jesus died on the cross. He, take, he took care of that legal thing. So the devil can no longer come and say, I have a claim on the soul because of sin. Jesus says, no, I've already paid the price. So you have no claim on his soul. Now, if he gets out of the path I set on him, you know, you might be able to whack him a little bit every now and then when he steps out from under authority. But his soul is mine. So... That is justification. Sanctification is a process by which God works out all this bad stuff in our life slowly. It's a process. So if you're a new Christian, don't be busy to spout scripture how you know everything and everything. Just keep your mouth shut and listen to some older people, okay? Be disciple for a little while. If they say go clean the toilet, go clean the toilet. You're not ready to spout scripture yet. Disciple forces you to be humble. <laughs> Just because you have knowledge. I know a lot of people who know the Bible and know anything about Christ or humility or following the Lord. Just have word knowledge of it. So, so you get this, what I'm saying? So there's union with Jesus when you come to accept him or, you know, the, I know we do the Lord's Prayer, but there's no such thing in Scripture. We just do that because it's one of the best ways to express what we do it. If you look in Scripture, it says, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. So what does that mean? Jesus! Okay, you're saved. What? Do you think that's a joke? No, it's not a joke. It says, call on the name of the Lord. That's his name. Peter and uh, James, I mean, in the prison, right? He says, call on the name of the Lord. You and the household will be saved. So there's not a prescribed. Eventually, you have to call on Jesus, and he has to, you know. But that's, that, that's where we get this from. So anyway... So communion comes at that point, and the, I mean union, and then the rest of our life we're trying to have be communion with Jesus. So Jeremy and I have been friends for a while. I might say some things that tick him off. You know what? He might say some things tick me off. But we love Jesus, so we can't stay mad at each other. Eventually we've got to work something out, right? That working something out is our life with Jesus. So like Jesus says, okay, do this, you do this, do this, you so when you start obeying the Lord, holiness becomes a byproduct of obedience. It's not a thing you buy. 
or a thing you perform with. So a holy person is one who obeys the Lord, an unholy person is one who disobeys the Lord. Let's have a little bit of what's both going on in our lives. And this is what being sanctified means. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right, I'm going to wrap it up here. Actually, I got a whole 30 minutes to go, but I'm just kidding. All right. Therefore, God's chosen people, chapter 3. You guys good? All right. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Then 16 and 17, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as we teach, and admonish one another with all wisdom. How do they say to admonish one another? By saying, Sydney, you messed up, you better straighten out your life, because here are the things you're doing wrong. Through psalms, hymns, and songs, from where? So spontaneous worship is absolutely in keeping what Scripture says. And we can do that to each other. We don't have to do that out here. You could be in your own home. The Lord gives you a word or song, sing it over your friend. Tradition keep us from doing that sort of thing because really, God speaks that way. Of course it does. Scripture says, do this. Perfectly legit. Somebody comes and says, man, that's all messed up. Tell them you go argue with Jesus. We can be, you know when people really respect Jesus? Is when you're messed up and you own up to it. I've got more respect from owning up to my mistakes and apologizing to people than I have for doing things right all the time. If you make a public boo-boo, make a public apology. If you made a private boo-boo, keep it private. Go into telling your friends and asking them how to fix it. Because it becomes public at that point. And I've done that. So uh, Nick Pappas is a good friend of mine. He was senior pastor of New Beginnings well before I took over. And he and I were very blunt with each other. And he, he you know, the Lord saved him when he was like middle-aged and he's a New York Greek Italian who you know if you use 10 words in a sentence only four were necessary the rest were for color <clears throat> if you ever heard New York Greek Italians talk you know what I mean so you ask him why, why do you cuss so much he says, what the blankety blank do you mean cuss I don't blankety blank cuss he said he had to learn English all over the Lord had given him English because he didn't know how to talk he'd been grown up talking that way so one time we were having breakfast he says man I said this I said man that was a mess up from the pulpit. I said, well, what do I do? I said, next Sunday before you preach, you stand up and say I messed up and apologize for it. You know what he did? He did that. You know, a pastor's really good about being transparent and not trying to hide his humanity because that's, preachers aren't any different from anybody else, folks. Stop putting them on a pedestal. They have a role to play in kingdom work. Don't expect more out of them. If you expect that, then you're creating a double standard, which means you expect Pastor Jeremy to perform differently than you're performing. 
And that's called hypocrisy. We don't like that. Go somewhere else. Listen, folks. Do everything as unto the Lord. That's the last bit of that thing. It says, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Whether it's your studies, whether it's your work, whether it's a relationship, whether it's, I don't know, acts of generosity, whether it's correction. You know? One of the things that freed me up, for those of you who are working in the, in the employment place, is that at the end of the day, Jesus asked me, did you do a good job today? That's the only thing that should matter to you. And if you can say, yes, Lord, it wasn't as good as yesterday, but I did. Okay. Don't matter what your employer says. Many people have employed me. I've never worked for any of them. And don't you either. Do everything as unto the Lord. You'll find yourself alone a lot of times. You'll find yourself in a squeeze sometimes. It's okay. Because when they start hurting, all the haters will come running to you. Happens all the time. They may make fun of you, or whatever it is, but if you're transparent, I had a guy I work with said, man, what kind of preacher are you? You cuss at me sometimes and you show me rude gestures. I said, well, that's the only thing you understand, so that's why I'm talking to you that way. Yes, I do. Yeah, I occasionally cuss. I just try not to do it up here. Because some of you are traditionalists, you might all get bent out of shape, you know. Because Jesus doesn't hear unless you close your eyes. And you never do anything wrong. <laughs> all right, funny story, and I will end this up. So, Nick Pavis. Oh, poor Nick is going to kill me. Wait. So, whenever he's preaching, I'll be in the back of the church walking around and praying. And, you know, we get enthusiastic about stuff. And please don't get offended what I'm about to say. It's, it's all funny. It's all good. Jesus heard it, and he was cool with it, so it's okay. Um, so he's talking about how we hide the glory of the Lord. So Moses goes up for a whole week. He's up on the mountaintop, you know, and he comes back down, and his face is glowing, right? And all the people are like, oh, you know, your face is glowing. It's terrifying. Please hide it. So what does he do? He hides his face. So we're preaching on this, and I mean, Nick's preaching on this, and he goes, so Moses comes off the mountain, and he puts a veil in front of his face to hide the glory of the Lord. What the hell was he thinking? <laughs> yes, he said that from the pulpit. And I can see from the back that our church was very forgiving because everybody there was messed up so bad. You know, that was just a small thing. So weeks later, we, did, we used to do these occasional surveys. And, you know, we said, please don't put your names on them. Just let us know good and bad things. And after a while, you get to know your people you know who wrote what because they, they write like they talk, right? And uh, there's a sweet lady. You know, she wrote on her note, it's much nicer now that you don't use so much profanity from the pulpit. <laughs> hey, listen, Nick is a powerful man in the Lord. He changed youth town completely by the Spirit of the Lord, not by a work of man. He and I have been friends for a long time. There are people like, what I'm saying is that if you just looked at what he says and what he does, you think that there's no way this guy's a Christian or God can use him. Because sometimes he's that way. Sometimes we're that way too. 
Stop trying to perform to please the Lord. He loves you. He loves you. When you start getting to know him, and he starts getting to know you, be honest with it, and your life will start changing. What is of the spirit is of the spirit. What's of the flesh is of the flesh. All performance is from the flesh. All redemption is from the spirit. Always. If you're trying to solve a spiritual problem with a fleshly solution, it does not work. Have any of you got mad at your dog for barking instead of talking? Huh? Have you? I'm asking an honest question. Say yes or no. Like, you say, who is there? Did you, did you get mad at your dog because he said there's a stranger in the yard instead of barking? He should have said that. Why didn't you say that? No, why? Because you know a dog's a dog. What's it going to do? It's going to bark. His nature does not change. Jesus, on the other hand, does something to our nature. He changes it. We are a new creation in Christ. And we have to feed this new guy. The old guy's sitting there waiting for an opportunity, you know? So we have to, what it says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So on one side, it's an inversely proportional equation. If you put to death things on one side, life will come up on the other side. Done algebra, right? And inverse proportion, value increases on one side, the other side it goes down. Just take it right. Just think of it this way. The more this goes down, the more this goes up. Father, just thank you and I praise you for your, go for your goodness, for your kindness. Thank you for not throwing me under the bus. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, Lord, I'm just completely messed up. But, but Lord, you know our frailty. Your word tells us that you know we are like grass. But yet, O oh Lord, you incline hear your ear to our cry. Uh, your word tells us you rend the heavens and come down so that you may rescue us. You tore up the grave so that we could be set free from death. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, help us to see you and not ourselves and not other people. Help us to hear you and help us, Lord, more than anything else to obey because, Lord, you know my spirit is willing, Lord, but so many days, it's just my flesh is so weak, I can't even bring myself to do the things I know that I ought to do. So, Lord, grant us grace and grant us strength and grant us perseverance so that we continue to obey and to follow you in the ways that you've chosen so that we may be trees of righteousness planted in the Lord as Isaiah says. Give us, Lord, beauty for your ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, that we might be trees of righteousness planted in the Lord to bring glory to you. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.